Hello, everybody. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, is this your first time? My name is Joel. I'm the associate pastor here, and it's a joy to be back with you. Um, to, to start off, let me ask you this question. How many people here are part of our life groups or neighborhood groups that we call them, race events? That's a ton of you. That's great. For, for those of you who are not in, look what you're missing out on. Like these people are like so friendly and nice. I've heard that, that the pastor that oversees small groups at this church is a great guy. I don't take my word for it. I don't know him. Um, but uh, in this current uh, group cycle that, 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 that we've been through, uh, normally what we do is we like journey through uh, a book of the Bible. And this cycle we've been journeying through the book of Philippians. And... You know, I've been part of some of your groups getting around to visit them, and we've noticed that there have been some phenomenal discussions and questions and insights coming out of these uh, group conversations uh, through Philippians. So we figure it would probably be a good idea to, for us to look at the book together as a church. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to kind of like uh, look at Philippians together now. We're doing something a little bit different. In, instead of doing kind of like a one long series going through the whole book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, we're actually going to do two series because we feel like there's these two uh, kind of like consistent themes or threads running through the letter to the Philippians. One is kind of like the implications of the life of Christ for us as people, as individuals, and the other one is uh, the implications of the life of Christ for us as a community. Uh, so, so today we're starting this new series, we're calling it Finding, and it's all about the idea of what are the implications of the life of Christ for us. So uh, you might ask yourself, well, finding what? Uh, I'm a huge U2 fan. I think it's the greatest man of all time. Uh, you could disagree with me. You'd be wrong, but, but it's, it's a free country, so you can do that. Uh, so, so I wanted to call the series like finding what you're looking for, and then Chad thought it would be a little bit too on the nose. But uh, the reality is that uh, I, I think that Bono had a point. And if you ask me, Bono always has a point. Um, but, but we're all searching. We're all looking for something. And if the last series that we did about, you know, dealing with detours talks about kind of like the detours that we take in the journey of life, which by the way, that'd be a great name for a church. Um, for, for most of us, that journey is a journey in search of something. It's a journey in search of fulfillment. It's a journey in search of happiness. It's a journey in search of purpose, or however you want to name it. And th the thing is that I feel that a lot of times we are much better at looking for something, at searching for something, that we're actually at finding it. Uh, many, many of you, I know you, you are very well-educated people, and we spend our life studying and kind of like stacking up degrees so we can get a good job, and then we can advance in our career, and hopefully that also translates into, you know, getting a better, uh, you know, get pay, gra uh, pay raises and, and, and getting good prospects so that we can make money and hopefully in the pursuit of that we can meet somebody that we can start a family with and raise kids and then we start searching for all of the things that come with what we think is, you know, being a good parent, being able to provide for our children, right? Having a good house and finding a good neighborhood and a good, a good school district and, and all of that, those things. And what I think is that in that journey of life, trying to, to, to find these things, what we hope is going to happen is that somewhere along the way, 
things are going to click. And that what we're going to realize is that this is the life that we wanted all along. And that we're going to be fulfilled and happy. And uh, for some of us, and I would argue actually for, for most of us, you know, that moment never comes, right? That, that uh, we think, hey, if, if I get to the next level, if I get to the next promotion, and then my hours aren't as crazy, and then I'm not going to have more time to be at home, so my spouse isn't going to resent me, I'm not home to help us much with the kids, so I'm going to have more time for that, and hopefully that means that the relationship problems that we're having are going to kind of like lower because I'm present more, and also then my kids are going to like me better because, they, you know, like we think, hey, if I get to the next thing and then we get the promotion, it's like, yeah, uh, your hours are 9 to 5, but now you're traveling like 20% of the time, so you're going to be out of the country, right? And, and this idea of what we're trying to kind of like get and hit, it never really gets it. We never set to achieve what we're looking for. We don't find we're looking for, which brings me to this series that we're doing, and we're calling it Finding. And, and as I told you earlier, like we're basing this series in the book, or actually the letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Now, here's what's interesting about this letter and why we're, we're starting here. Um, the letter to the Philippians is a letter that, that for, for what we can see from history, is written from prison. So most scholars believe that the time that Paul writes this letter, he's under house arrest in Rome after his third missionary journey. And if that's true, then he probably has been in prison for more than two years at this point. And if you want to read up on how Paul ends up in prison, you can go to the book of Acts and read in chapter 21 and kind of like see the details of how this comes to pass. But to briefly summarize, Paul is in Jerusalem. He gets arrested. Claudius, the tribune, kind of like a Roman official, saves him because the the, the leaders in Jerusalem want to kill him. And basically, he sends him to jail for a couple years. And eventually, he gets sent to Rome to be judged by the Caesar. And on the way there, he's shipwrecked and almost died. And now he's in house arrest in Rome, waiting for an audience with the emperor. And the problem is that audience with the emperor can go one of two ways. You're guilty, off with his head, or you're free. Like, those are your two choices. So he's under house arrest, waiting for a trial, and very likely one of the results from this trial is that he will be executed. So the church in Philippi, which is one of the churches he plants, let's imagine that this is Chad, and Chad is in Canada under house arrest, and Justin Trudeau wants to like execute him, and we feel bad for him. So we send him a care package with Gary, right? Like that's what's happening in the story, right? So the church in Philippi sends his care package with an emissary, and they send supplies and, and, and money for him. And Paul kind of like as a thank you for that, he writes him this letter to thank him for what they sent to him, but also to try to encourage them. And this is a thing. He writes his letter, and this letter is fundamentally an ode to joy, no pun intended. <laughs> it's some of the most beautiful Christian writing about joy and purpose and peace and meaning. And I find this fascinating. Because if we're all kind of like in this search for, you know, for, for money or success or fame, at, at the end of the day, I would argue that we don't really want those things. We want what we think we're going to get from those things, which is peace and happiness and fulfillment and meaning and, and joy, right? And I don't know about you, but for me, on the list of top things that will deliver a life of joy, house arrest with the possibility of execution doesn't crack my top ten. 
right? And yet, here's this guy, Paul, writing this whole letter from prison about joy and contentment and, and purpose. It's, it's paradoxical. It's counterintuitive to all the ways in which we think about how to achieve those things. And the question then is, is there something that he knows that we don't know about how life actually works? And could it be that maybe there are things in this letter that could be key to finding what we're actually looking for? So with that said, turn with me to the letter of Philippians. Now, as I said, we're not going to go in order and we're not going to go verse by verse. So it's going to be like a little bit of jumping around here uh, to kind of like introduce you to the letter. It starts like normal letters at that time. There's a greeting and he's saying how grateful he is to God for them. And then on the very first chapter of this letter, kind of like in the middle of that, he says something that's going to set the stage for what this letter is going to be about. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. And then, Couple verses down, he says, verse 12, he starts kind of like recapping what's happened to him. And he says this. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, know that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my change more painful to me, but that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, these will lead to my deliverance. So Paul is trying to encourage the church in Philippi who are understandably worried about him, but Paul says, in this right letter, he says, actually, you know, all this stuff has happened to me, uh, you know, in a way, it's working out for the better. Why? Well, because I'm able to continue preaching the good news, the gospel. Uh, now, Chad is actually going to break down this passage in more detail next week. I just want to point out two things that are going on in here that I believe will help us understand how Paul can have joy in the middle of imprisonment and the danger of execution. Verse 10 that I already read, he starts out saying this, I want you to understand what really matters. And I think this line is important because Paul is in a masochist, okay? Paul isn't saying, hey, I love being in jail, right? I love suffering. This is awesome. What he's trying to communicate is that he's able to endure suffering. And in a way, he's able to be grateful, not for the suffering itself, but for what the suffering is allowing him to do, meaning preaching the gospel, Precisely because his order of priorities in life is different than most people's. Because he understands what really matters. 
And the question then is, well, what does really matter, right? And I think we're going to find the answer in the next two verses. So verse, Philippians verse 20. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, listen to this, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. Other translations say the, most, the very famous lines, right? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know how sometimes we're trying to emphasize the importance of something, and sometimes we use the phrase, this is a matter of life and death? And if we're honest, half the time, it's not a matter of life and death. You were just running late and you need your coffee. Like, 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 but we kind of like, like to use that language uh, because we want to drive this point home. Yeah, Paul is under house arrest awaiting for a trial where one of the results could very well be his execution. This is truly a, as much a matter of life and death as it gets. In other words, this is important. This is, as Paul says in verse 10, what really matters. And what does he say really matters? Well, he says... Christ really matters. For to me, he says, to live is Christ, which in and of itself is a remarkable thing to say, but it comes even into, into sharper focus why it's so important when we read the next thing that he says. To me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying, for me, what really matters is Christ. And it's not important in relative terms, okay? It's not like Jesus is the most important thing in my life about many other competing interests, right? It's not like I have my job and I have, you know, my, uh, I don't know, my golf games on Saturday morning and those are important and then my family, no, no, no. He's saying these are much more profound revolutionary words. He's saying like, like Jesus is, is, is life. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Apple TV show Ted Lasso. If you can notice, I'm representing my boy Daniel Rojas. <laughs> Football is life, okay? Uh, you know, that, that's his phrase. Now, this is the thing. If you don't grow up in a country where, 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 where like football is what football, and I'm not going to say soccer, I'm going to say football, that's a real one, okay? Uh, if you don't grow up in a country where, where, where this is true, you sometimes don't get it. In Latin America, football is a religion, okay? It gives meaning to life. There's people in Argentina that when, that when they won the World Cup, it meant more to them than when their children got married. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, that's how important it is for them. Some people that like basketball sometimes will say ball is life, right? Like, it's this idea that for certain people, this one thing gives meaning and life and joy to everything. And soccer, that's how much of that. But Paul is saying the true meaning of life for me, if I were to say something is life, he would say is Christ, is Jesus. And then, you know, he goes and says, and to die is gain. Which, again, sounds like an outrageous thing to say because Paul isn't just the guy that's out with a death which that doesn't want to live. The reason why he says to die is gain is because he believed, like Christians have believed for thousands of years, that somehow upon death, when we die in Christ, when we believe in Jesus, we are united with Jesus. We go to be with him. 
And we know that because of what he says next in, in, in the letter. So verse 22 says, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Paul is saying, the whole point of life for me is Jesus. When I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. So if the worst thing that can happen to me is to be sent into the presence of Jesus, then I am effectively immortal. And by this, I don't mean just the resurrection. What I mean is this. Uh, have you ever watched a romantic movie where the two main characters find each other and all of a sudden they fall in love and in the very melodramatic movies or books, you know, there's a point where one character is going to say something like, I don't want to live if I'm not with you, right? Or like, life means nothing to me if you're not in it. And then like, Juliet kills herself and Romeo kills himself and then everybody dies, right? <laughs> Paul is saying the reverse of that. Paul is saying, what gives meaning to my life is Jesus. And because Jesus has defeated death and promised to me that when I die, I will be with him, then I can never truly stop living. And Jesus thought about this idea a lot. He calls it what? Eternal life. We see this, for example, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is praying to his father before being arrested. And he says, in his prayer, he says, and, and, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Jesus is praying and he says, eternal life is to know God. There's a couple of layers of meaning to that because one is that there's this very um, real physical dimension to eternal life. Right? We just celebrated Easter, the day when we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is something that we as Christians believe will one day happen to all who believe in him. That we will obtain physical resurrection, physical eternal life. And the way that you obtain that is through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But I also think that there is a relational layer to this verse. That, that what Jesus also seems to be implying is that to be truly alive, to really experience life, can only happen through the knowledge and the experience of God as revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. This is how Paul can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One commentator paraphrases his verses this way. He says, life means Christ to me. As I more fully know and love and serve him day by day, death means Christ to me. When I shall finally possess and eternally join him. Now, as a Christian and as a pastor, these verses make sense to me theoretically. But if we're honest for a second... They sound a little extreme, don't they? Like, if we're honest for a second, they make it sound like Christianity is a cult of fanatics. And I would argue that the reason why is that it feels like this, because maybe we haven't had a full grasp of who Jesus is. Because a lot of times we make it sound like Jesus is just this other religious leader or, or teacher and then, yeah, like if that was true, then I would say, yeah, Paul is probably losing it a bit. Like, no, come down, buddy. Like, it's just that the teacher, right? 
But the truth is, I would argue that sometimes I, I worry if that happens to us as well. You see, the challenge of doing church the way we do church, and what, by that I mean is we, we try to make this accessible to people, so we're not doing like Gregorian chants, and it's not like the giant chapel, and there's no incest, and we're not speaking Latin, right? Like, a lot of the things that we do is because we wanted to make it easy to understand. If you don't know Christ, to, for this to somehow make sense. And I stand by that, I believe in that, but, but the challenge is that there are some claims that Christianity makes, some truths that Christianity kind of like it's founded upon that are just fundamentally hard to access because of how outrageous and scandalous and almost hard to believe are. Who Jesus is is one of those claims. So the problem that we end up with sometimes is that, you know, we can present Jesus as a, as a teacher that we can learn from or as a friend that we can count on. And Jesus is those things. But if that's all that Jesus is, then a line like, to live is Christ, to die is gain, sounds outrageous. We could never get there just based on that surface level knowledge of who Jesus is. And the problem is, as Paul says, this seems to be of utmost importance. Paul says, this is what truly matters. And we're going to see in this letter in the next few weeks is that for Paul, the reason why he has found purpose and success and contentment and peace in the midst of legitimately terrible circumstances is precisely because for Paul to live is Christ. In other words, Paul has found life, the life that is truly living in Christ. So we're going to talk about finding all these other things. We first have to talk about finding life. And if for Paul to live is Christ, then we have to talk about finding Christ. And, and where that begins is by having a better grasp of who Jesus is. What is about Jesus that Paul has found so compelling that he can say, to me, to live is Christ? The question then is this. What's so special about Jesus? And we begin to find the answer to that in the next chapter of the letter to Philippians. So let's jump to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Some scholars believe that, that this section is kind of like an old hymn that existed at the time that Paul kind of like incorporates into the letter. And the hymn, whether it's that or something that Paul wrote himself, begins with this assertion. Jesus is God. We're not just talking about a person. We're not just talking about an important teacher. We're not just talking about a good man. The foundational belief of Christianity is that Jesus is God. C.S. Lewis says it this way. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, it's a random analogy. Or else, he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. But it's not only that Jesus is God. Because he keeps going. Verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. So it's not only that we believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus is human. If Jesus was only God, he would be impossible for us to relate to, to understand, to grasp. But what makes Jesus so unique, guys? What makes the Christian doctrine of the incarnation that God became flesh in Jesus and so scandalous and revolutionary is the fact that in Jesus both divinity and humanity meet. What that means is that we can understand certain things about Jesus because we've experienced him. We've experienced pain and thirst and hunger and emotion the way that we see Jesus talk about in the Bible. But more importantly... We can know that he understands us in a particular way because he knows what it's like to be us, to be human. But it's not only that Jesus is human. It's what happens to Jesus as a human. So the next verse, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is God, Jesus is human, and then Paul is saying, Jesus died for us. Paul is getting us here. Is that no, he don't, he, Jesus didn't just die tragically because he was killed by the Romans. But there was some level of deliberate intention behind Jesus' incarnation. Meaning that Jesus came to die and to die in this particularly horrific way, which was a crucifixion. And the question is Why? Let me show you this. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, kind of like this same long scene in the gospel of John before his arrest. He says this. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. So, you know, uh, verse 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves. Because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the father told me. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he makes this incredible connection between love and friendship and death. Jesus is saying love like how I love you. Which by itself is wow, Jesus loves his disciples. That's just huge. But then look at this. No greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then the very next thing. By the way, you are my friends, right? And then the next verse he says it again. Now, you are my friends. What Jesus is saying, what Jesus is telling his disciples, trying to advertise it in as clear a way as he can is, I'm dying for you. Jesus died for us. And then Jesus is kind of like trying to tell them, and the reason why I'm dying for you, it's because that's what love requires of me at this moment. Jesus died for us out of love. In our words, Jesus loves us. 
This is Karl Barth. Karl Barth is probably the most influential Protestant theologian of the 20th century. To give you an idea of how eloquent he was in his writing, this is his magnum opus. It's called The Church Dogmatics. It's 14 volumes and six million words long. It's a dream of mine to own a copy. My wife is having like twitches just hearing me say that because I have enough books. If you have one like sitting in a closet that you don't want anymore, talk to me after the service, okay? And the reason why I'm showing you is because this guy has a way with words, okay? He's not sure with words. In 1962 is the one time he visits America. In one interview, someone asked him, can you summarize the essence of your teachings, the essence of your writing? And he says this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The most eloquent theologian in however many generations summarizes everything. Jesus loves me. Now, by, the, by, by themselves, these ideas are true. Make Jesus already the most incredible person that we've ever met, right? But then there's another dimension to this. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not only that Jesus is God and human and that Jesus loves us, it's that Jesus reigns. This is not a tragic figure who just gave up his position as a son of God and became a human and died. Jesus is the one who has overcome death. Not only the one who has overcome death, but the one who has risen from the grave and now is exalted above all. Can you see how this God, man, could be worthy of somebody saying of him, to me, to live is Christ. Of course it is. It's God we're talking about. But it's, always, it's also somebody who understands me, who, know, who knows what it's like to be human. Someone who is apparently willing to empty himself of that power and majesty just to save me, even if it costs him his life. And not only that, but this God-man is not a figure of the past, but it's someone who reigns as God. Show me anybody that can compare to that. Show me anyone who can match up to that. So show me anyone of whom is worth saying, for to me to live is. Maybe Paul was a fanatic. And maybe this whole thing is a cult and you should turn around and run. But what if Paul was right? What if Jesus is who he says he is? What if Jesus is life? I want to introduce you to my favorite essay of all time. This is called Upon This Rock. It's by a guy named John Jeremiah Sullivan. He's a writer from a bunch of like elite publications like New York Times and uh, Harper's Paris Review, all these sorts of things. And back in 2004, he writes this article about visiting Creation Fest. And, you know, it's incredibly long, 10,000 words, I think. And from the get in the article, you can tell that he has a little bit of like condescension toward Christianity, so to speak. Uh, and he's very detached, kind of like, you know, Christians are silly, and he's kind of like, almost like observing from afar, like, uh, this, this festival. 
But until several thousand words in, he lets you in on a secret that for a couple of years when he was a teenager, he had been a Christian. And this is how he starts that section. He says, statistically speaking, my bout with evangelicalism was probably unremarkable. For white Americans with my socioeconomic background, middle to upper middle class, it's an experience commonly linked to one's teens and moved beyond before one reaches 20. These kids around me at creation, a lot of them were like that. How many even knew who Darwin was? They learn. At least once a year since college, I'll be getting to know someone, and it comes out that we have a common, uh, in high school, Jesus face. That's always an excellent laugh. Except the face is supposed to end. Or at least give way to other faces, not simply expand into a long preoccupation. Then he goes on kind of like to tell, talk about his faces as a Christian, and then he talks about how he eventually walks away from Christianity for a number of reasons. Then he says... My problem is not that I dream I'm in hell or that Mo, that's his youth leader, is at the window. It isn't that I feel psychologically harmed. It isn't even that I feel like a sucker for having bought it all. It's that I love Jesus Christ. The latchet of whose shoes I am now worthy to unloose. I can barely write that. He was the most beautiful dude. Forget the epistles, forget all the bullying stuff that came later. Look at what he said. Read the Jefferson Bible, or better yet, read the Logia of Jeshua by Guy Davenport and Benjamin Urrutian, another translation of all the sayings ascribed to Jesus, the modern scholars deem authentic. There's your man. His breakthrough was the ascetization of weakness, not in what conquers, not in glory, but in what's fragile and what suffers. There lies sanity and salvation. Let anyone who has power renounce it, he said. Your father is compassionate to all as you should be. That's how he talked to those who knew him. But then he says this. Why should he vex me? Why is his ghost not friendlier? Why can't I just be a good enlightenment child and seeing his life as a sustaining example for what we can be as a species? Because once you've known him as God, it's hard to find comfort in the man. The sheer sensation of life that comes with a total all-pervading notion of being, the pulse of consequence one projects onto even the humblest things, the pull of that one's lacking, and one has doubts about one's doubts. This is a secular writer who would classify himself probably as a diagnostic, who probably wouldn't step foot in a church today. And he says, I can't give Jesus up. There's something about him. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I found life in Jesus, and I miss it. And the challenge for us, the challenge for you and me is how do we respond to this? How do we find the life? Well, Jesus tells us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. I promise I'm closing with this. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. What Jesus is saying is this is a problem. 
that all of us are searching for life in the wrong places. And we think we're trying to find life in money, in success, in relationships, in possessions, in accomplishments. And Jesus is saying the problem of looking for life in all those places is that they're dead end because I am life. And the only way you can actually find life is to believe that I am life and to search for me. And you can't search for both things at the same time. Which is why Paul is able to say, for to me, to live is Christ and to life is again. And the point Jesus is making is, when you do that, the thing that you've been looking for, the, the joy, the fulfillment, the peace, the contentment, the life, you're going to find it in me.